Welcome to the Black History Toolkit podcast with Abu Bakr Madden Al Shabazz. Support the channel by subscribing and also making a donation via Patreon or buy a cup of coffee on Kofi. See the links below. You can also find out more by visiting the website abubakamadan.me. The first thing we're going to kick off with is looking at white supremacy and how that came about. So this is looking at the structural and institutional racism in society in the workplace, because this is one of the major problems where institutions within the Western world are now looking to enhance this particular reality. White supremacy is about the superiority of white people over the dark races. And this came about with European colonization from the 1400s right up until the present time. We've seen the enslavement period occur as a result of that, as well as colonization and colonialism. And today within the global economy, we're seeing how European nations are plundering the poorer worlds of the black and brown people and giving them very little in the way of subsidies or with business financing in order to maintain those economies within their countries. So let's kick off. So white supremacy or superiority in reality. Okay, so like I say here, the term white supremacy was coined and constituted or constructed in the USA after the American Civil War. So this is important because a lot of people get, uh, get offended, especially from the dominant culture, when we hear about white supremacy. But the reality is, is that white supremacy itself was actually coined by white people. We have to acknowledge that. And it was basically during a time after the Civil War where poor white Southerners who wanted to align themselves with the wealthy rich people of America decided to coin this term because they had an element of uncomfortability for them as poor white farmers to be associated with so-called Negroes or slaves at the time. So in order to uplift themselves as poor white trash, which they were called by the white dominant culture within America, they decided to align themselves on color. Even though there was class distinctions between poor whites and rich whites, whiteness is what bounded them to the aristocracy within the United States of America. So this is how this really came about. So you can see where the class dimensions are actually merged together in where whiteness is concerned. There's no distinction with white supremacy, whether a person is poor, rich, or whatever the case may be. They may have class distinctions, but the reality is they fall under that whiteness, which gives them elements of privilege, which they can then initiate power. So we also look at white supremacy is beyond the local and the national boundaries. So white supremacy is a global system. This is what needs to be understood. And white supremacy can be taken back to at least 5,000 years ago when it was constructed within what we would now call South, in South Asia which is India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka, known as the Varna system. Varna actually means color. This is what Varna means. It was a color-coded system where the Indo-Europeans came down into the equator, into black lands, such as India, such as Mesopotamia, which is Iraq, such as Egypt, such as the Levant, which is Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, Palestine. This is where these white people came in and they took over those structural systems of these dark races. And then they constructed a white supremacy perspective by giving it, cloaking it within religiosity, which was known as Hinduism. Even though many Hindus do not subscribe to this, the reality is it's live and kicking as we speak today. If you go to South Asian countries or Indo-Asian countries, etc., you will notice that the lighter skinned people at the top and the darker skinned people at the bottom. It's the same in Australia, New Zealand. It's the same in England. It's the same in France and Germany and Sweden and Denmark and all these places. It's also more evident in the so-called Middle East as well as North Africa. So it is clear within the, within the construction of race classification today that lighter skinned people at the top, darker skinned people at the bottom. And this is how this come about. So it's a global phenomenon. So let's have a look at what we talk about black because one of the unfortunate thing is, is that white people because of power and privilege still feel they have the right to determine who we are as a people. All these social constructions that we have gone through as being devised by white people themselves, such as the concept of Bane, 
Bain is constructed by middle-class white people, black people, brown people, yellow people, red people didn't construct this term. It was white people in order to divide those groups from themselves. This is why they did this, is because it's for no other reason why this came about. So what is black and why black and minority ethnic? Because this is what it was called before Bain was called black and minority ethnic or BME. Okay, back before the 1990s, it was referred to as black, which I'll talk about later. So let's have a look at some of these images. Let's, and also let's have a look at some of the text. In Britain, the term black was originally used as a political umbrella term, bringing together people from a range of backgrounds, which were African, Asian, Caribbean, okay, South Asians, Pacific Asians, Turks, and even Irish were considered blacks. So black, was a political term for those people who they saw as non-white. So whenever you read the history books or sociological texts, which deals with the 1960s, 70s, 80s, you know you're not just dealing with also looking at the Asian community as well from South Asia. You're also looking at the Asian community that came out of places like Africa, like Uganda and Tanzania. In Kenya and South Africa. You're looking at those groups of people, even Mediterranean people considered black, like Turkish, Spanish, Portuguese, yeah, Italians, they were all considered black. This is what is important here. So black doesn't necessarily mean the way it, it means now in Bain. Black actually meant people who was the other to the Anglo-Saxon or the Celts of this country. During the 1980s and early 90s, there was a growing movement to use the term black more in line with usage in the United States, where it meant African and African Caribbean. So there became a form, there became a time where black became an element of representation, because one of the unfortunate things, if you read the dictionary, that black has negative connotations within the Western world. And that was socially constructed. Black always has something to do with negative. This is, this is important for us to know. So outside there, if anything black has to do with negativity, then whiteness has to do with things that are positive. So the reality is this became apparent to the likes of Malcolm X when he was in prison. One of the things he memorized the dictionary was that he noticed that every term, every time that the black term was used within the dictionary, it always had a negative connotation. And even today it has a negative connotation, consciously as well as unconsciously. So how do we try to overcome that? Well, it's part of the social structure of the linguistic construction of the people of this country, unfortunately. If there's a bad day, it's a black day. You know, you have Black Wednesday or Black Thursday. When, when the economy crashes, whatever day it crashes on, if it's uh, Friday, Black Friday, whatever the case may be. We also have Black Friday for the cheap thing that probably that's the only time the black is used in a positive aspect but what i'm trying to emphasize here is reality of what black meant as a term and how that was taken by groups of people and tried to be made positive this is where the aspect of black pride comes from the aspect of black pride can be dated back to the 1800s so even though the lgbtq plus use it for their slogan. It is something which has been plagiarized to a large extent from the black movements of the 1800s through to the 20th century, which is the 1900s onwards, where it was elements of black pride. Now they talk about gay pride. Now they talk about just pride because they forgot about the lesbians in this construct. So it was literally plagiarized from the black experience and we can trace its roots and its connections historically. Okay, so black and minority ethnic refer both to those who suffer discrimination because of their appearance, because of their skin color, their phenotype, and to those who suffer discrimination on the basis of culture and ethnicity. So it looks at their cultural practices and their so-called ethnicity. And what I wanna emphasize here, that white people are an ethnic group, which I will show you later. So as we can see here, we can see the different changes and constructions that has taken place within British society. So black, obviously, and then obviously by the 1970s, we started to see the element of color or colored. And then we have minority, we have minority ethnic, ethnic minorities, then Europeans or British people said, well, this was not politically correct. So they changed from ethnic minorities to minority ethnics. 
and then it was black minority ethnics. Now we have people of color, and then obviously we have the BAME, which is the Black, Asian, Minority, and Ethnic Groups. So this is how it's been constructed, especially in the last 60 to 70 years. You know, the 1940s and 1950s, Black people were known as Negroes because that was associated with slavery. The, 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 the aspect of trying to abandon this acknowledgement and term by Black people themselves was a way of trying to address the inferiority complexes that they felt that they were experiencing by utilizing and facilitating these terms. Okay, so let's have a look at Bain. Bain is a socially constructed term coined by white middle-class Brits. Black people don't coin these terms. This is what is known as external definitions. External definition is when a dominant group decides to determine who people are. Wade Nobles, a, a psychologist, a, a psychologist from America, an African-American psychologist say that power is the ability to define someone else's reality and to have those people, the weaker people, respond to that definition as if it was their own. So BAME is not our construction at all. And many of us don't like using this concept because British people have always named us. When we were taken from Africa by the Brits, they took our names off us, simplified it. Even today they have problems pronouncing our names. They like to shorten our names. They never can say it properly. They can't be bothered to learn our names. This is why they changed their names during slavery. They this is why many of our first and second names as African-Americans, African-Caribbeans, Peter, Paul, Donalds, surnames like Williams, O'Brien, Evans, Morgan, and the list just goes on. So this is what happened. So they socially construct who we are. We were Negroes, then we were Maroons, then we were Caribs and Caribbeans, yeah? And then we were known as ethnic minorities, minority ethnics, and the list just goes on. Yeah, and black became something African Caribbeans, Afro Caribbeans, and and it just and the list goes on. So this is what it's about. So when we look at black, black to deal with the color of the skin, but the unfortunate reality about this is that white people have deliberately put mixed race groups who are half whites into the black category, and that goes to show their own racism to a large extent because mixed race people are half white. But in the construction of race, these children are never regarded as being half white. They're always the other. They're always black or half black. They're never white or half white, even though they're 50-50. So this is a clear understanding of trying to distance people who are half white from the white race or the white group. It's an element of group closure, which I will talk about later. It's to determine their so-called reality. Their reality is that they're both. They're 50-50, not one as how British people like to construct them. And this is one of the problems we find in Wales. They're never half Welsh, even if their mothers are white and their fathers are black, brown, yellow, or red. They're always given to the other people, to the other culture. This is the unfortunate thing. And this goes to show how race is socially constructed within British society. Then the A for Asians, that came in in the last four to five years, okay? Because it was known as Bay. Uh, black minority ethnics. Now the Asian came there because Asians do not see themselves as blacks. They don't necessarily see themselves as browns, even though many of them, them are. Okay, they are white within their own countries, but they will play that down in this country because white people do not accept them as white, as history has taught us. You know, especially in America, where many of them will go in to settle in white communities, they will be thrown out. And the same in this country as well. This is why when you see no blacks, no dogs, no Irish, the blacks actually included Asians, um, Mediterraneans, people from the Levant, Middle Easterners, North Africans, etc. They all fell into that box. So we were all treated the same, depending on the different levels of pigmentation that we possessed. So minority groups are majority white. If we look in the minority, because we look at we can look at uh, BAME as being just minority on its own, or we can actually say minority ethnic. But let's have a look at what minority groups are. Minority groups are people who are, who are considered disabled. They became minority groups in 1995. White women, 1964. The LGBTQ, which first started off the gay liberation movement, yeah, okay, when they actually said that homosexuality was no longer seen as a mental disease or mental illness or a mental disorder, in the 
mid to the late 1960s, which is confirmed by, by the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, okay, lesbians and gays became minority groups in 1972. Okay, and then the list just goes on people with mental health problems, learning difficulties. So all these are minority groups. A minority group is not about the amount of people that fall into a particular category. A minority group are those groups of people who are seen to be marginalized or polarized within a society. This is what this basically means. It's not about numbers, because if it's about numbers, why don't the middle class or, or the minority of wealthy people in this country call themselves minorities. They don't do that because the word minorities comes from the word minor, which means insignificant. That's what minority means. It doesn't mean numbers. This is a game that they like to play upon people. Minority comes from the word minor. Majority comes from the word major, which means important. So language determines the reality of what that symbolizes within society. You can cloak it up and cover it up with what they feel that it means numbers, number, number proportionalities, etc. But in reality, it means minor, which means what? Insignificant, and those groups of people who would have considered important. And ethnic groups or ethnic minorities or ethnics are your Portuguese, Italians, etc. Arabs, Kurds, English, Welsh. Scottish and Irish. I want to focus on this because they are ethnic groups, because there's a lot of white people who've been miseducated and untrained properly in these diverse trainings to believe that minority groups are other than themselves, which means that the average British person who happens to be white in this country do not know what ethnic means. Ethnic means a group of people who have a shared history, culture, language. This is what it means. Welsh people have this. Welsh are not the same as the English. The Scottish are not the same as the Welsh. The Welsh are not the same as the Irish, and the list goes on. They have their own history, their own language, and their own culture. So that's what constitutes an ethnic group. An ethnic group doesn't mean someone who's non-white. This is, this is this another racial construction to divide people from what they're supposed to be and who they are. This is what's important here. So let's have a look at these authors here. These authors, and the reason why I picked them, they're both females, okay? And they both look at the denial of racism within British society. Okay, Rennie at the top, she's of Nigerian uh, descent. She wrote this book, looking at why she no longer is gonna talk about race with white people. This is what her book is really about, White Fragility, by D'Angelo is another book. And what these women set out in their books to try to understand, why is it that white people are putting their head in the sand and denying that racism ended? And I have this issue as well with the people of the dominant culture. If racism ended, and I ask you this, when did it end? Give me the day, the month, and the year that it ended. And the day, month, and year that is celebrated in this country. And if you cannot give me a date, it means it never existed, you know, which means it went underground, okay? Racism, racism had never ended. This is clear. And this is, what is, you, this is what many people from the dominant culture use as a defense mechanism in order to deal with the reality of the implicit and, explicit and the explicit racial discriminatory practices by by the dominant culture within British society. So they deal with these issues. So let's have a look now. From the 1990s till recently, British whites believe racism in British society ended. This element of repression, okay, these are defense mechanisms. Defense mechanisms are strategies that are used to reduce anxieties, stress, elements of depression, uncomfortability. Okay, so it's a motion, it's a move to try to distance themselves from the reality of that which is being practiced within society. Then we look at we look again. When I would ask, when I when I would ask them about the day, month, and year, like I just said, when it was eradicated, they could never say that. They could never give us a day or the month, which meant that they were living in denial. White people saw the end of this despicable behavior through actions and thoughts because they were not hearing negative terms. So why white people believe that racism no longer existed was because they no longer heard the word nigger, wog, 
Coon, Gollywog, Black Bastard, Shruti, Paki, Cooley, Chink, Mongrels, Jippo, and the list just goes on. So because the dominant culture, we're not hearing this, this to them indicated racism ended. But what they forgot was that racial prejudice existed and racial discrimination. So the reality is, is that there's a, it's a defense mechanism used because they know it's wrong. They know it's wrong and they know it makes people uncomfortable because they were trained, unfortunately, implicitly or explicitly to accept these notions and they perpetuate this on a daily basis. They actually try to divide this into good person, bad person. Due to the uncomfortability of the R-word, because that is what racism has become in the British context, it's now become the R-word, like the N-word. Okay, why is it okay for people of color who are traumatized by this experience to accept this type of negative behavior? But when they themselves confront the perpetrators or people from the dominant culture of his existence, they want to deny it, suppress it, repress it, displace it, and all these other defense mechanisms. Why is it so uncomfortable for white people within the dominant culture to hear about its reality? But at the same time, it's okay for people of color to experience this type of attitude. And this is the thing. Perpetrators have a tendency to a large extent, whether, they, whether it's implicit or explicit, to reject or to deny its apparency within society. And this is important. So what has happened with the training programs? Why the training program is focused on white issues, disabilities, mental health? learning disorders, sexuality, yeah, gender issues, all white, all white people's issues. This is why I put that minority section in, in Beng. It's, white, it's a white section. And we know it's a white section because even when funding forms for black minority ethnics were apparent, do you know that disability people could apply for that same funding pot? Did you know that women in women movements will apply for the same pot and the LGBT could apply for the same pot. So that, that is clear that they were minorities according to that classification with funding forms. So let's not play games anymore. Let's try to be honest, okay? We are trying to divide people based upon races. And then when, you, when a certain group of people get some advantages given to them by that society as a form of concession or compensation in the government, particular white groups will come in in order to ensure that there's no takeover by so-called people of color. And this is why it is that. It's, that's what white supremacy does in reality. It's to become superior in every realm, even in realms where there's disenfranchisements and disadvantages with marginalization and polarization that exists even amongst the white majority or minorities within this country, alongside those people of color. So I also talk about psychological defense and mechanisms were used to deal with the reality of racism in their communities and the labor market to justify the explicit and explicit racial biasness. And this is why it's become the R words. The reason why we have all those unconscious bias because middle-class white people felt very uncomfortable about the term race and racism. That's why they call it unconscious bias. We know this is a middle-class term because underclass or working class whites don't use these type of terminologies or phrases, unconscious bias. It's a middle-class term because they were the ones which were the most sickest when it came to acknowledging their treatment towards people of color in the workplace because they're the people of power. They're the people of power, which means they are the ones who are privileged. So in order to try to diffuse that reality within their minds, they coined this term unconscious bias okay it's it was racist training it's supposed to be anti-racist training that's what it was they call it unconscious bias which don't linguistically make sense and don't practically make sense it's just a term which is thrown together by people who are not psychologists and people who are not sociologists people from the business world whose concerns about power control and economic dominance who coined this term this term was not coined by psychologists and sociologists. It was coined by people of money and finance. And that is what, that's the reality of this situation where class dynamic formulates things. So D'Angelo, 
she talks about in the element of white fragility. Why is it so hard for white people to talk about racism? It's okay for darker skinned people of color, whether they're black, brown, yellow, or red, to experience it, but it's not okay for white for the dominant culture to talk about it. And this is what white fragility is. They like to put the barriers to the realities of other people's sufferings because they know if they are seen as perpetrators, then they have to feel they have to internalize that in some way uh, to be guilty rather than doing something about it. You don't have to feel guilty. Okay. We all have we, we all have guilt. We all have a heart. Well, some of us do. But what do we do once we learn the truth? How are we going to use our power and privilege to identify that? Because that is what white people have in common, whether they are working class, underclass, middle class, they have all one thing in common. They have elements of power towards people of color, and they also have privilege in relation to people of color. This is what they share. And this is what she outlines in her book. So there's always three aspects we need to look at when we're looking at uh, the realities of uncomfortability of people of color. Prejudice, discrimination, and racism. And these are terms that we need to acknowledge and understand that we live with these biases on a daily basis. So we should stop calling things implicit bias and uh, unconscious bias. Call it what it is. Let's stop playing with words. This is why we have these anti-race training programs, because many people which have come to do these programs, unfortunately, have been white. People with no lived experience who have been sanitizing the reality to white workers of working class and middle class people for the last two decades. And this is why we're back to this again. Let's get people of lived experience to come in and do these trainings, which is going to impact you. Let's stop sanitizing and lying about the reality. This is why white people until George Floyd's death were saying in America and Britain that racism had ended. We live in a post-racial society. Look at Oprah Winfrey and Bill Cosby and Obama. You know, a few, few of them have made it. A few white people have made it in white society. Does that mean that the working class and underclass of this kid, does that mean that their representation in those positions, yeah, alleviate the stress and realities of the underclass and working class amongst white people? It doesn't. So we should stop using these things, which don't even exist within your own culture. So this is what is important here. So prejudice is basically about prejudging, okay? Before knowing a person, we have pre preconceived ideas. This is what prejudice is about. We all have this. If I say a Jamaican to you, you don't think of a scientist or a, or a mathematician or a mechanic. You don't, okay? You think of somebody who dances, who sings, who entertains. This is your perception when you hear Jamaican. If you hear Nigerian, what comes to mind? When you hear American, what comes to mind? What comes to mind when you hear Muslim, Muslim women? Muslim man, what comes to your mind? Because you've been socially constructed to believe in something. Because unfortunately, within Western society, the dominant culture, they do believe in their own PR. You do. This is why advertisement is a multi-billion industry, trillion industry. Because if you, you know, because in order to make that, those type of profits, there has to be people who are suckers or people who believe with advertisement and marketing, whatever the case may be. So this is trying to understand what prejudice is in its most basic and simple form. Then we have discrimination. Discrimination is action based on prejudice. So it's the active, the practical manifestation of prejudice of the mindset. Okay, this is what happens because when we look at them, there's a mind, there's a, an emotional, there's, so there's a mind, how someone thinks about race, how someone feels about race and so on acts according to race. So racism could never have ended, especially if you've got racial prejudice or racial discrimination, which shows within the boardrooms where we don't see people of color in decision-making positions. That is the reality. And if your business is like that, this is how you are adding to the reality of white supremacy. So you have discrimination, which is action, and racism occurs when a racial group's prejudice is backed by legal authority and institutional control. So we know what takes place within the legal system. And we know that darker skinned people, people of color are given more harsher sentences than whites for doing the same crime. 
So don't think that it's just located just within the educational system. It's in the nine, nine spheres of society where human activities are concerned. Education, entertainment, economics, yeah, labor, law, politics, religion, sex, and war. Okay, this is where it all acts itself out. So everyone's affected by this in some way, from as early as three years old, right up until you end up leaving this planet. This is how explicitly and implicitly manifested these realities are within your culture. When I mean your culture, I mean your own cultures, because remember, it's amongst my people as well, light skin supremacy. Within the Asian community, whether they're Southeast Asian, South Asian, okay, it's amongst the darker races. It's even in the Middle East and North Africa, these racial stratifications. So we have to acknowledge that. So hegemonic structures basically looks at the ways in which systems are structured in order to restrict or to exclude particular group membership. Is your organization, is your workplace, does it look like this? where the senior management are at the top, the white people at the top and the people of color at the bottom? Or is it this one here, where you see the little white girl with the white glass, with it being, half, with it being a bit empty at the top, which means there's room for more white people to grow. If it looks like this, this is group closure, okay? Which is there to exclude, not to restrict, it's to exclude. Or is it like this, where is restriction, which means you can get in, but you can only go so far. How does your organization look? If your organization looks like this, it tells me a few things. One, you haven't had no or very little anti-racist training. This is the first thing you've gone with this unconscious bias, which have sanitized reality of racial discrimination, racial prejudice, and racism within the workplace. That is what has happened. So the reality is, is that we need to relook at the reality of our institutions and our structures within those institutions. Are we limiting people's access or are we prohibiting them from getting anywhere? And this is what hegemonic structures are really and truly all about. So explicit and implicit systems, and this is how these things formulate because race goes through all these uh, different terminologies over time, as if, because race as a term, the R has become the R word. So we've got to put words in front to reduce the impact that racism has within society. So now we have cultural racism, which is now the new form of racism that has come about because scientific racism has blown that out of the water. Scientific racism, in, in other words, was a belief that white people were superior because they had the physical and biological specifications that made them more superior than people of color. And when DNA came out in the 19, late 1980s by Rebecca Gunn and her team, showing that there was only one race, there was one human branch and went back to one woman that lived in Africa, 90,000 to 200,000 years ago, all of a sudden we realize, which we always knew, that race is a social construct. We're all one. It's the monogenetic fact. We all come from one gene, and then we spread. And then we all had different colors, etc. But there's only one race, the human race. So you've got cultural racism. Then we have structural racism, which is something that is embedded within all the different institutions, education, entertainment, economics, labor, law, politics, religion, sex, and war. And then we have institutional racism, which looks at different institutional structures, such as the police force, the legal system, such as the educational system, and such as the workplace, which is connected to the labor market. So this is how these things come together. So let's have a look at group closure. So group closure or social closure is where a group of people come together in order to restrict or to exclude people from that membership. It's, a, it's an exclusive club. Okay, so a deliberate policy by a dominant group to close their ranks in their labor market, ensuring that melanated people don't get into higher positions in their working establishments, because they believe that this belongs to us, not to you. And this takes place, unfortunately, among senior management, CEOs, and company directors. This is how it's still stratified. So how, when did racism really end now? Let's, uh, let's look at a look at 
all these different workplaces we have worked in and show me proof, give me evidence or give yourselves evidence of how it was eradicated. It only eradicated in your mind by closing your eyes or putting it in the sand. It was not eradicated in reality. Group, group closure is a sociological principle when certain groups of people collectively come together to prevent others accessing, okay, their structures and institutions due to fear, dislike towards those particular groups. So it, we go, it goes beyond the individual now, group closure. Group closure taints individuals as well as that individual group. Group closure restricts the allocation of resources from being communities. So funding forms, for instance, when we're doing anti-racial, anti-racist training, a large proportion of that money goes to white trainers who have no lived experience on racial issues. And this is why many of you have been saying for the last 20 years that racism had ended. You've been lied to, okay, as well as being duped into believing this philosophy. It was, it was a theory which can never be proved at the time. This is what is, what is really important here. So we are here to really try to understand how can we try to change things? Because this is a global phenomenon. It's not just the dominant culture within Britain that are affected by this. People of other groups are affected by this. They are now dividing their people based upon skin color, based upon phenotype based upon the historical fabrication of particular groups by a particular group. So we have to look at this reality in order to understand how things are. So resource allocation is about the unfair distribution of wealth, salaries, etc. This is what comes out in a group closure perspective. This is what you'll see. Ethnocentrism is evaluating minority cultures through British or Western lenses. Okay, where very little interaction is done between the observer and the people supposed to be observed. Very little communication is taking place. It's all based upon conjecture. And this is the problem with ethnocentrism. Okay, you want people to speak the language of refugees and asylum seekers to come over here to speak your language, but you have very much, you have a lot of difficulties even just pronouncing their names. This is how lazy a group closure is. They feel that they have the privilege not to do the right thing, but they expect other groups of people to do what they expect them to do. Then we have the element of scapegoating, which many of you already know, and assimilation is the ultimate within group closure. But even though you refuse to admit people or limit people's um, activities within the social structures that you control, you expect them to abandon their cultural values in favor of yours, and, and they're still not given a place. Even the salons amongst us believe this, and then they still find out that they are still closed out of those particular ranks. So this is the reality. So looking at equality in your workplace, we need to move away from equality to equity. Equity and equality are two different meanings. If we treat people the same, it means that certain people are gonna miss out like here, okay? So when ramps came instead of steps for disabled people, okay? That was an element of equity because equality meant that disabled people are supposed to be able to use steps. We're gonna treat them the same. We can't treat people the same. People are idiosyncratic by nature. They have their own particularities and specificities in their design, makeup, operation, functioning, understanding, and emotional expressions. This is what this is about. So equity is the best because what happens is you treat people according to their needs. And this is a problem with many of our working institutions within the labor market or within the third sectors, where we treat the people according to our culture, which means our culture encompasses everyone else's. Western culture, unfortunately, lacks cultural elasticity. It doesn't believe in sharing its culture with other groups of people. It believes in cultural dominance, that everyone comes under the ban of their culture, so they must abandon theirs. Because if that was the case, Britain, Britain, British people abandoned their cultures when they went to Australia or New Zealand or America. No, they took their cultural values here, they planted it there, and expected other people to conform. And it still resonates in the minds of the average person in today's society. 
So here we're just talking about assimilation, which they want to get. So assimilation here is looking at the assimilationist believe in the post-racial myth. So when people assimilate, say, for instance, they believe that racism has ended. It's a post-racial society, but it's a myth. Okay, it's not a reality. Okay, uh, that talking about race constitutes racism. Okay, so if you talk about race, that constitutes racism, not the act of being racially discriminatory towards somebody. Okay, this is a game which is being played now because race has become uncomfortable to educated people who should know better. And this is why it's now being downplayed. So these are some of the things we need to acknowledge and understand. And we see how race is used with words and terminologies on the news. Because remember, many of you do believe in your own PR, unfortunately. You believe what the news tells you and you take it, you know, you may, you may, some of you may take it with a pinch of salt, but if they don't catch you with the news, they catch you with billboards or magazines or in soap operas or in advertisements or in marketing ploys. They're gonna get you in one way or another because it's a trillion pound industry a year. Okay, so when we look at the division of races, you've got black people and white people. So let's look at drugs. So you've got drugs for black people, drugs for white people. When there's problems of drugs in the black community or amongst black people, they're either drug addicts or drug users. But when it happens amongst white people, they are chemical dependent or substance abusers. This is a language which is used. So they're, so they're telling you, without using black and white, because remember, it's the R word now. No one wants to talk about race, but racial discriminatory practices and notions are being manifested within words and phrases and terminologies. And this is the game which they're playing. Then we have what is known as drug communities when it's in the black community, but when it's amongst white people, it's drug culture. We call it drug culture because more and more white middle-class people are addicted to cocaine. So in order not to reduce them because they should know better, they are more educated, okay? They change the terminology or phrase in order to lessen the impact. When you look at women of color, black women, white women, okay? When a black woman, when a white woman is speaking out, she's speaking her mind. But when a black woman does the same, does the same thing, she's an angry black woman. When a white woman is frustrated, the black woman is aggressive. Same behavior, but different terms, okay? Asserting her rights, because we live in a so-called democratic society, when it's a white woman, and when a black woman does exactly the same thing, it's a masculine attitude. And when she speaks out using a particular tone, a black woman is considered loud, and the white woman is just expressive. These are the games which are seeing played. So when did racism end? When did racism end? This is the question. When these things are happening, and these things are happening now. I bet if you open up the newspapers, you will see these terminologies being used without knowing there's a racist or racial undertone. And if you look at boys, I can go with girls, I can go with children, or whatever the case may be, you'll see the same game. So boys is an example, black on black crime. is never white on white crime though, when it's the same thing. It's street violence, street killings, or stabbings. This is the game, okay? You know, the first world war was white on white crime. They don't call it white on white crime. It's called the world war. When it was a European war, they make it a world war. It wasn't a world war, it was a European war where white people were killing each other over who is a superior white. Were they, Alp were they the Alpines, the Mediterraneans, or the Nordics, or the Aryans? That's all it was about. That's how, that's how it began. White supremacy amongst themselves. Okay, and then you ask for West Indian, West Indian regiment, you ask for Indian soldiers, and you ask for all these people of color from your empires to come and fight your racisms towards yourself. And it's never portrayed like this in the, in, in the history books, and it's not portrayed like this within the curriculum. It was a white, it was a racist war where white people were killing each other over who was superior over which particular group. Are the Alpine superior to the Mediterraneans or are the Aryan superior? Because these are the groups which they cut themselves into. But you'll find, rarely find these things being spoken about within the curriculum. And you've got animals, when it's black people, if they, if they misbehave, when white boys do it, they're hooligans, we're street thugs, but they are antisocial behavior. So 
these are the, the racialized word games which are being played. And the same thing here, when you have a particular behavior, for instance, a Muslim shooter, okay, it's the responsibility of 1.3 billion Muslims. A black shooter is gang-related violence. When it's a professional shooter, it's a national hero, which is referred to as collateral damage. Just so happens that a few people, or when a white shooter is gone on a rampage, he's known as a lone wolf. So these games are being played. These are just some of the things that you need to understand what media and politics are using to try to change your minds. So let's have a look at social divisions. Social divisions is based upon inequalities and stratifications. Inequalities are the unfair distributions of minerals, resources, and commodities within society, particularly groups of people. Stratification looks at the layers in which people are placed, the hierarchical structure. That's what stratification is. So when you look at the social divisions in British society, what you'll notice is it divides into many, many different realms or elements, class, gender, social needs, sexuality, age, race, mental health, disabilities, okay? None of these are regarded as the same. So let's say my focus is gonna look at race. So Stuart Hall, who was a sociologist, actually proposed that race is a floating signifier. So race goes through these series of events over time in order to change its meaning. Now race, before it was known as racism, anti-racist training, then it moved from anti-racist training to unconscious bias because it became the R word, a word we don't want to hear. Okay, this is what it became. Cultural racism, institutional racism, and the list just goes on. So race takes all these different forms and different disciplines and sciences and subject areas was being used to restructure race. We have what is known as race at the center. And these are different disciplines in which they, these subjects had come in to construct race. So we looked at Hinduism and we looked at Christianity with the curse of Ham. This is how different racial groups of people became separated. This is what happens, you got the curse of Ham, Ham that Ham uh, looked at the nakedness of Noah, therefore all black people were cursed with the being dark skin, which meant they started off white and then they became dark. Genetic evidence has brought this out of the water. So religion was using conjecture to justify racist behavior. That's going onto the water now. We know that the, the original people on the land were dark skinned people because the close proximity of the sun to the earth needed those darker skinned people to cope who had that melanin. It's not about superiority and inferiority. It's about mel melanin production in equatorial regions in order to survive the intensity of being, of contracting cancer from the ultraviolet rays of the sun. This is what it's about. Then philosophers such as David Hume and Montesquieu and Kant all had racial notions about people of color. Science was known as pseudoscience. And when DNA came out, that just blew that out of the water. Then we had sociology, history, and anthropology doing its bit. And this is where we've got to today. And the political and legal system have manifested inequalities and stratifications based upon the particular groups. Even a few months ago, there was an experience by a black female barrister who was confronted by three different people in the department in the court of seen as a criminal. The, the, the person, the, the security, okay, because she didn't have a uniform on. Because she didn't have a uniform on, she couldn't have been um, a barrister. The, the, you know, the, the security guards tried to think and then she had to show a proof, okay? You wouldn't even admit her because of her skin color. This is a black barrister. Then when she worked into the courtroom, the clerk actually tried to push her out and said she's not, yeah, because she didn't have a uniform on. And then even the judge had actually said something and this upset her. So racism is even in the, in, in, in the judicial system and the legal system as we speak today because of inequalities and stratifications based upon race. In 1969, it was determined that racism is a mental disorder. The specific nature of the destructiveness of racism was set forth by the caucus of black psychiatrists at the 1969 annual meeting at the American Psychiatric Association. 
The Black Caucus stated that racism was not only the number one mental health problem in this nation, but additionally was the number one cause of all other mental problems. And this is what was defined as a mental illness. Asa G. Iliad was a psychologist who talked about this in the 1980s and 90s that expressed that it has five different signs, racial discrimination or racism being a mental disorder. Denial of reality, to deny that it exists, perceptual distortion. Oh, that's not racism, that is bullying. Oh, that's not racism, that is based upon gender discrimination. That's not racism, that's a class distinction, okay? Perceptual distortion, always trying to ethno, uh, ethnocentrize it, make it a European, uh, make it a British issue by camouflaging over the race. This is what the, this is what this is about perceptual distortion, a phobia of feeling different, a fear of feeling different. Okay, so we see this within society with the mental illness. We see in where, unfortunately, where white women are putting different sorts of fat in their lips that imitate black women. You know, when it was on black women, it was rubber lips. Now they're taking it over. It's known as beauty and aesthetics. It was never aesthetic, aesthetically beautiful on a black woman. But now it is because of whiteness and white women. Okay, this is crazy. This is a phobia feeling different. Okay, so this is what has happened over time. And I can give many other examples. Delusions of grandeur. The person who killed George Floyd was sat there with his, with his knee on his neck for approximately what, 10 minutes. Just looking, delusion of grandeur. Nothing is gonna happen to me. Looking straight at the camera. Okay, this is what power and privilege does. Power and privilege gives you an element of responsibility and feels that you cannot be accountable for your behavior. That is a sickness that comes as a mental disorder when racism is acted out, whether it's from, from the psychological, from the emotional, into the practical behavioral manifestations. This is what happens. And then blaming the victim. They did the same thing with Rodney King. If he stopped, he wouldn't have got beaten. Okay, the four police who beat him turned out, and I thought my life was threatened by this black man, an armed black man, by the way, you know, George Floyd was unarmed, and the list just goes on and on, where police are using this thing, where they're falsifying reports, and then what happens after they falsify reports, when some smartphone has filmed them, they're still allowed to keep their jobs, they're still allowed to keep their pensions, and they're still allowed to go home and kiss their wives and their kids goodnight, after they've just killed somebody. And this is the problem. So put the blame on the victim. They shouldn't have done this. They shouldn't have done that. They shouldn't have been in this area. So this is what has happened. And this has become an international phenomenon. We even know what took place in China. The reason why we don't talk about racism within China was because that was, that, that was taken over by the George Floyd death, where Chinese people, the authorities, were throwing Black people out of apartments on the streets. This is what they were doing. And when they spoke to the diplomat or the minister or whoever he was about this, oh no, it's not happening, okay? Denial of reality, perceptual distortion. Or maybe they went onto the streets because they had a fear that they were gonna contract coronavirus within the buildings. This is what he was saying. A phobia feeling different, okay? Delusions of grandeur where they felt that they, even though it's supposed to have started in that part of the world, they wanted to project it on someone else, blame the victim, okay? Project blame on someone else. So this is what happens. So you can see how racism becomes a mental disorder. And this is how it manifests within Wales. So we have um, Mahmoud Matan. He's the last person to be ex executed. Police had falsified evidence in the 1950s during a trial where, he's, where he was claimed he was supposed to kill somebody and he was executed, the last person executed. It's unfortunate this happens. This, these are miscarriages of justice. His wife, she was literally run out of the community. You ought to realize in the 1950s, having mixed race kids who were half white, may, may I remind you, were never considered half white. They were considered more to be Somali or half Somali, never half English or never half Welsh. They will actually run out of Butown, et cetera. So we've seen the different types of miscarriages of justice. Then we saw this one here, the Cardiff Five, where policemen, South Wales police had falsified information of four or five innocent people of color. 
You had an Af you had two African Caribbeans, full-blooded African Caribbeans. You had a mixed-race Arab Welsh person. And then we had these two cousins here who were mixed-race from the Caribbean Welsh-Irish mixture. And yet, so it doesn't matter. They were all considered Black, according to South Wales police. Two of them got off, the two cousins, and they decided to keep these three in as the killers of Lynette White in the, the brutal killing of the 1980s. And this will happen. South Wales police, they falsify the information. This is, this, is a tough, this is what racism does as a mental illness. Blaming the victims. They, they victimize people and blame them who are innocent. None of them were there. Do you know that some of them didn't even know each other, really? They knew each other by name, but not through interactions. So this is, this is one of the problems in this country. Then we have these two, two mixed-race boys, okay? Well, half white, may I remind you, were in either City Road or Albany Road in the 1990s. And you hear this. The police, the, the dispatcher had called, called police. He said, look, there are two black men, not mixed race men, two black men were being attacked, racially attacked. This is what was said if you watch the footage. When the police turned up, the first people they went for were these two men. And they left the white people who were beating them up go free. Go free. They were told who the victims were. They let the white people who the perpetrators go and kept these and incarcerated and incarcerated these two boys who were the innocent ones who were driving, who were attacking their own car. And even a young girl who was one of, one of the sisters of one of these young men was at the back. Okay, this is what they done. So you can see the, the aspect of racism being a mental illness, denial of reality, or it can't be these white boys who are attacking, even though they were told by the dispatcher they were attacking these mixed-race boys. It had to be these mixed-race, it had to be these mixed-race boys who must have started it. It had to have been. This is what they were saying when they were just there to defend themselves. You know, perceptual distortion, or let's go for the black boys. Four bit of feeling different. Or, well, if we don't stop them, they may attack us. Delusions of grandeur. We are better than them. This is why they let the white boys off who were actually perpetuating a beating towards these two boys and blaming the victims. These were the, these are people who were victimized. And then we see another controversy with the legal system. So when we talk about racism and ended, please tell me when did it end? Please tell me when it ended in the educational system, economics, entertainment. When did it end? Labor man the political, legal system, yeah, and so on and so forth. When did it end? Yeah, we have to really ask ourselves these questions. And the young black boy was supposed to be pushed into a river and no justice had come to this boy, this boy's family, unfortunately. And the person who was, who was a culprit for this, what the South Wales police had turned, had the audacity to turn around and say that, well, the boy who was, who was involved, he was doing well at school, and we don't want to break up his education. This is the sort of, this is the kind of injustices that take place with when we look at the legal and the political and the judicial system when it comes to race, unfortunately. We're not even talking, we're just talking about the labor market. Now we're talking about the people who are there to protect us, and this is how they operate. So now you can see it being a mental disorder, where you've got people in so-called responsible positions acting irresponsible and being unaccountable. So let's have a look at the educational system. Now, the educational system needs to change because it is white dominated. There's a monoculture, one culture, that really looks at the English. If you look at the educational system as an example, you will notice that the educational system has very little to do with <coughs> so-called Bain communities or Bain groups. And it also has very little to do with Wales. If you look at the thing, it talks about the Tudors, English. It talks about the Stuarts, English. It talks about the Norman invasion. It talks about the Viking invasions, all outside. These are all English. The English and invaders into this country took part of Wales and Scotland from these two Celtic groups and created England. That's what it's about. So even Welsh people, to a large extent, are not experiencing their contributions, achievements and accomplishments within the curriculum. Now, the Swan Report, which was constructed or solidified in 1985, proposed education for all, that all children should be educated 
irrespective of their cultural and ethnic background. So they are centered in the curriculum because the curriculum is a predominantly 100% white curriculum. White people are mentioned every subject. They're mentioned history, geography, science, which looks at physics, chemistry, and biology. They're all white inventors and heroes, okay? If we're looking at the, um, the STEM aspects, we still see the same things. Mathematicians were all white, all the great mathematicians. If you look at Ari, they give us a bit of Ari, I must admit, that's because many white people in today's society are no longer attached to religion. So what we're now seeing in Ari, that more and more of the other religions are being spoken about. And that was the only reason, no other reason. They didn't socially construct that into the syllabus in order to address multiculturalism within society is because white people didn't want religion anymore. That's why they done it. And if you read the report prior to that, um, manifestation. This is the conclusion, and the only conclusion you can come to. History is still denied uh, an appearance of the contribution, achievements, and accomplishments by so-called black, brown, yellow, and red people, and also what takes place in geography lessons as well. So this is what happens. So there was two reports done. The Rampton report in 1979 confirmed the existence of racism in state schools. And it perpetuated right up into the 1980s until the government decided in order to reconstruct um, a new educational system under the Education Reform Act of 1988, which actually was there to ensure that multicultural education wouldn't be part of the national curriculum. So this is here just to reinforce what the two reports were saying. The Ranger report argued that racism was a major factor in the experience of black children in schools. But however, that's rejected by the government, the Westminster government and the Welsh government. Do you know that in schools today you can legally discriminate against, against people of color, whether you're a pupil or a teacher and get away with it? because the reporting of racial discrimination, racial prejudice, and racism within the educational system in Wales is non-mandatory reporting. Non-mandatory, okay? Other things are, but racism is not, unfortunately. Even now we're seeing, even where black boys and in playgrounds, and I have, I've heard many cases, I'm an educational consultant, had I been their groin squeezed, by young white females in school, when they go to complain, nothing is done about it. You, you know, the teacher's reaction towards this, or oh, you should be so lucky, why would she want to do that? This is happening as we speak now. So white girls, unfortunately, allowed to sexually abuse boys of their peers within school and get away with it, with the knowledge of the teachers. This is the reality, this is what happens. This is what makes racism a mental disorder a denial of the reality, the sexual distortion, the fear of feeling different, the delusions of grandeur and blaming the victim. Then we had the song report which came out in 1985, but by 1987, it confirmed some of what Rampton's findings was made about racism being an integral part of the educational institution at that time, and they voted in favor for a multicultural education in which children, all children should be reflected so they're all educated. Okay, this is the thing. So, unfortunately, as we speak today, there is no school in Wales that practices complete inclusivity inclusivity of all the pupils. Maybe they may work in groups, but as far as the syllabus and the curriculum is concerned, that's exclusively white. And that is one of the problems. Okay, so this is just looking at multicultural education in schools and the trivialization of culture. So they look at sari, samosas and steel drums. You think people's culture is just based upon dancing and food, but that's what they do with minority groups. Theirs is based upon culture understanding, behavior, pattern behavior. But when they look into black and brown cultures, it's about foods, it's about dress, as if dresses are costumes. These are people's dress. These are people, this is how people dress in it, and not costumes, okay? You know, and obviously steel drums. So it's all about entertainment. And this is what they've reduced multiculturalism in school within the Welsh curriculum, unfortunately. And this is, and the reason why they do that is because People from these communities are not in decision-making positions. 
So just like I talked about what takes place in the corporate world, CEOs, senior management, managing directors, etc. Same thing happens within the educational system. And then you've got uh, Dr. or Professor Pilgrim, who was my professor when I was at, when I was at Cardiff University during 2005 and 2008. She did a lot of studies looking at the anxiety levels of black pupils within the educational system, mainly African Caribbean boys, but what she started noticing, there was a large amount of Somali boys being suspended and excluded from school, which means that teachers are culturally incompetent of dealing with boys of color. This is what this shows, okay? And the reality is, is that since 1990, since, ni since, 19, since the 1950s, the figures have been increasing, not reducing, has been increasing with different ethnic groups that are coming in. So there is a major problem between white female teachers in the educational system, unfortunately, and boys of color. This, this, this is a major problem. And the fact of the matter is, it's the same teachers who would expel it. So we, when you do the PGC programs, for instance, one of the things that you will notice, when they look at black pupils in the educational system, they will look at low educational attainments. They will look at suspension rates, exclusion rates, et cetera. And they'll also look at the ethnicity and backgrounds of these children, but they never tell you the ethnicity and backgrounds of the teachers who are responsible for the low education attainments of these black boys or the gender or the ethnicity of these, thing, of these people, which is white females. So these are the games they play, blaming the victim. Okay, delusions of grandeur, 